welcome back to the rewind i'm josh and this is a podcast where i watch a bunch of movies and talk about them with my friends today's episode is on netflix's the gray man joining me fresh off the hopefully still intact train from Prague. it's fred cobb fred how's it going i'm good and i am in fact happy to report that the city is still standing contrary to what you might have seen in the gray man <laughs> yeah for, for i'd forgotten fred was actually in Prague like a couple months ago and uh, one of the more one of the most like one of the highest collateral damage scenes in movie history this side of a marvel movie takes place in Prague in this movie so it's kind of funny that fred just happened to be there within the last couple of months uh, but the gray man I did is in the... fact notice that the city was surprisingly empty it's always supposed to be overrun by tourists but there weren't huh. as many people so i guess maybe that's because so many people were killed in that action scene that uh it's a lot emptier than it normally is. You probably didn't. You probably didn't see any cops because all the cops are definitely murdered in that scene. Um, mm. <laughs> but, uh, the the Gray Man is the newest movie from Netflix. It's notoriously like probably their most expensive original movie ever. It's like had a budget of around two hundred million dollars. Produced and directed by Joe and Anthony Russo, who everyone knows so well from directing a lot of the biggest Marvel movies, and uh, written by uh, the, the other the other co-writers of a lot of those movies, Marcus and McFeely, along with. Uh, Joe Russo. So just uh, a lot of that same team was like, hey, let's go do our own action thing. Use a lot of our cachet from hitting it big with all these Marvel movies to make a, another original movie with big stars. So and which is what they did, because, uh, you know, they brought over their friend Chris Evans. They also have Ryan Gosling and uh, Ana de Armas, who, you know, worked with Ryan Gosling in Blade Runner 2049 and with Chris Evans in Knives Out. Uh, Reggie John Page, who some people might know from Bridgerton. Uh, Ryan Gosling plays a uh, a uh, CIA operative who uh, was uh, who was just sprung from prison when he was in his early 20s after after he was convicted of murder by Billy Bob Thornton, uh, who is a CIA operative named Fitzroy, who put together his own covert team of guys who assassins who could work in the gray area. And that was the condition under which Ryan Gosling got out. 18 years later, he is sent on a mission to uh, assassinate just a target he doesn't know much about, but comes to find that it was someone else in this same, someone else, it was another assassin uh, from that same program, the Sierra program, the Sierra 4 specifically, Gosling plays Sierra 6, and when he finds out that Sierra 4 had some information on a lot of his CIA handlers that kind of been incriminating and that they had been sent to kill him he becomes a little suspicious and is like maybe i should kind of like stop doing everything these people want me to if i could be next on their kill list and decides to uh take this incriminating information finish a job of killing four and go on the run and he ends up getting help from Ana de Armas's, uh, uh donnie miranda who is a cia agent in her in, in her own right but you know uh reggie john pages denny carmichael uh is just you know uh, kind of the worst person in the world, but somehow running most of the CIA, and he sends a lot of people after him, including Chris, Heaven Chris Evans's Lloyd Hansen, a, a deranged former CIA agent with a massive mustache who is more than happy to use the CIA's vast resources to track six down. Uh, Fred, I, I'm kind of curious before we even delve in too much of the specifics of this movies. I'm we talked a little bit offline about just like the Netflix's output with regard to these kind of big budget movies. I have somehow avoided most of them. No one's really given me a hard time for not doing podcasts on uh, red notice or uh, the deep underground or whatever that one was called, or uh, what was it called? The underground something. Was that a, who was in that? Was that one of the other Chris Hemsworth one? I don't know. Um, and, well, there was that extraction one with Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. Uh, there was another one with Chris Hemsworth called spider heads that came out recently um mm -hmm. then there was the adam project i think you mentioned that one with ryan reynolds that one's actually pretty decent and then the most egregious one recently that they released was the man from toronto which oh, okay. um, 
I did not. I don't even know what that is. People avoid. Yes. Okay. Six Underground was a Ryan Reynolds one. I didn't even know that. So Ryan Reynolds oh, right. did yes. Red Notice, Adam Project, That's and then one. there was Six Underground. Yeah. There's so many. There's so many of them that like come and gone. Six Underground had a hundred and fifty million dollar budget, and like I couldn't even remember the name of it. Uh, maybe I should have been, you know, doing my professional obligations more and seeing these things. And it's just I, I could never really bring myself to do it. I there were so many other movies that you know seemed a little more worth giving my attention to, and I there's only so many hours in a day, and been pretty busy at work the last couple of years. So uh, yeah, Six Underground, for, by the way, was a Especially weird because I think they dropped that around the exact same time that the Irishman came out. So Netflix yeah, December 2019. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So big Netflix had a big budget Martin Scorsese movie and they released it at basically the exact same time as a new Michael Bay movie. So hmm. it was obvious that those two would cannibalize off each other, especially right around Christmas time when they released it. So that was a strange yeah, so. release strategy to drop that then. Yeah, Six Underground uh, and Red Notice, both 36% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, <laughs> and this one's uh, uh, the Gray Man's at about at, at about 49%. And, uh, you know, just a lot of these just haven't been received all that well. I think Extraction might have had slightly better reviews, actually. So apologies to Chris Hemsworth for me uh, missing that one. Or it seems like more people actually liked it from what I could tell anecdotally. Uh, but just given this all this... Oh, okay. So at least at least one of us is uh, more well-read on this stuff. So Fred, as someone that's maybe consumed a little bit more of this content than I have, but also watched this with your dad last night. I'm curious. I, I watched it by myself. I'm curious, like, where are you at with these movies in so much as are your expectations lowered to the point where, like, maybe you actually were, like, came out okay on The Gray Man because you and your dad had a nice time watching it, if nothing else, and it kept your attention. Is there, like, a, a lowered bar? Like, what, what, what are you coming into these movies expecting at this point? Yeah, so right after I'd finished it, my conclusion was actually, yeah, this wasn't too bad. It was an okay time. It was fun to watch like a very uh, bro traditional <laughs> action movie with my dad in 2022. It's nice that we got one of those. Mm -hmm. And then I made the huge mistake of right afterwards uh, watching one of the best action movies of all time by myself, uh, which is to say Speed. Oh. And I started it at 1130 at night and I was only going to watch about half of it and then watch the rest today. Um, but after an hour, I was like, God, no, I'm so hooked and I'm so, uh, so excited by everything that's going on. No, I'm going to keep watching. Like, I'm really into this. <laughs> and then I thought back to The Gray Man and I was thinking, huh, I don't think I felt like that at any point during that movie. And you watch, had, you, had you ever seen, had you ever seen Speed? No, I not actually. Okay. I think I, I watched it when I was like little and have not watched it since. It's something I know I need to revisit. So it's funny that you happen oh, to come stuff. across it. I yeah. recommend that. Um, yeah, it's... so I was just going to say that was a nice reminder of what really great high spectacle action stuff uh, can look like and can do to you as a viewer if it's done well. Um, and I think that's a big problem that Netflix has in general with their material that they get all of these high caliber actors into their movies uh, and then waste them on very mediocre scripts, uh, premises that we've already seen one way or another in other much better action movies. Uh, and the result is just kind of forgettable. And that's really unforgivable when you're working with some of the uh, most exciting and uh, most uh, acclaimed actors working today. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Ryan, Ren uh, not Ryan Reynolds. Uh, it's interesting. Ryan Gosling is someone that actually has really good taste as an actor. You know, if you go up and down his uh, like IMDb or his like Rotten Tomatoes page and see where like all of his uh, stuff is rated with the caveat, you know, Rotten Tomatoes isn't the end all be all, but like he doesn't really make a lot of duds. You know, he has really good taste. And it's funny that like, you know, he comes into a role for the first time in four years. We haven't seen him since First Man. And which which we also talked about on, the, on your pod, by the say, way, I was going to say that might have been I, th I thought that might have been something we did together. And it's funny that like he came back for something that wasn't great. And I think it's funny you also mentioned the Irishman because I, I was reading the, uh, David Ehrlich's review of uh, of 
the gray man in IndieWire, and he said, uh, Netflix tends to succeed when it empowers people to create art that no other studio would fund, parentheses, the Irishman, or support as strongly, in parentheses, the lost daughter. But it nosedives into the uncanny valley of quote unquote content whenever it tries to replicate the same Hollywood fare that it's determined to replace. And I, and I and the, my, my prevailing thought when I came out of the gray man was like, yeah, this maybe wasn't as bad as I thought. And there was some good stuff, but it's hard for like me to think that they really justified the existence of this movie when, say, the Mission Impossible franchise exists. And yeah, a movie cannot be as good of an action movie as like the Mission Impossible movies and still be good. But like at the same time, like you're going to spend $200 million on it. You, you would like it to kind of stand on its own in a different way. And, and if nothing else, this just feels like a Mission Impossible movie with like not quite as with nowhere near as good of action. Like it has some. And I, th I think there's actually pretty distinct parts of this where the action is good and where it's not good. But like the fact is, like, why not? Like, I don't know, draw better characters or something, because like that's the maybe if you want to say there's a weak point in the Mission Impossible movies, it's just that Ethan Hunt's not really a person anymore. He's just a vessel for kick ass action scenes. So maybe you differentiate differentiate yourself with your storytelling by making these characters a little more compelling than they are. But they didn't really even bother to do that. They just kind of made like a bunch of crazy action scenes and spotty potting. So that's kind of where I came, came out of this. Like I can pick out some stuff I liked in this, but like, I don't, it's like Netflix, what are we doing here? You could spend this $200 million, like so many other, so many better ways in my opinion, you know, and they, they wanted, I guess they wanted a franchise. That's what they're doing. I, I've read other places that maybe they're hoping this turns into some franchise where they can do a sequel, they can do a prequel or something like that. But for one, like Ryan Gosling's not doing a damn like a uh, prequel series or another prequel movie with you guys probably after this, like it, it bombs. He can go make more compelling things elsewhere. So I just think that like, it, it just feels like a whole, like, uh, waste of a lot of um, it feels like a lot of wasted energy and on something that could have been where these resources could have been put to better use. Yeah, it's surprising that this was the potential franchise starter that they decided to spend $200 million on because you mm -hmm. already mentioned Mission Impossible. Fallout, by the way, another movie we talked about. Yeah, so Fallout, yes, we did. Wow, I'd almost forgotten, but yeah. I specifically looked this up. Fallout only cost about $170 million to make. Really? Which is still a huge amount of money, obviously, but again, that's $30 million less than this one and arguably the more exciting and better looking achievement uh, yeah, and, as okay, far as so, an action movie is concerned. Well, so you made that point. Let me just cut you off for a second on the budget of that, because like it, it begs for those comparisons when it has a freaking plane crash sequence here where someone jumps out of a damn plane. Because in yeah. that movie, like you had the I, a really iconic scene, I would say, with the Tom Cruise halo jump out of the plane, which was just one of the more like uh, stunning visual moments in movies in the last five years here. I could not follow a damn thing that happened in this fight on this plane, on this movie. He jumps out of the plane without a parachute. And it's like the most uneventful thing. He like finds some other guy in the air and just like holds onto his parachute and that's it. And it's like, man, like you guys are really, really like, I, 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 I just feel like they, they, they messed up. by like, not like executing that scene better when you're going to, it's, it tracks so closely to something that's been done so well four years prior. Yeah, they also don't finish the scene off, by the way. It just cuts right. away, and then eventually Brian Gosling makes the phone call, and we realize, ah, okay, mm -hmm. he's on the ground. Now he survived, obviously. Um, so half-baked, so half-baked. Right? Wrap yeah. that up. Yeah, and you were mentioning Ethan Hunt, who is definitely not the most uh, layered and well-developed character in movie history, but those movies really get by on just Tom Cruise's uh, charisma, his dedication, his stunt work. So that's why I go to see the Mission Impossible movies at this point, because I know Tom Cruise risked life and limb, and we're going to see some really cool, well-choreographed action set pieces. And when you don't have a major star like that who's willing to take it upon himself to really just 
embody the franchise. And I don't really think anybody here fulfills that role. You can very clearly tell everybody's here because they got a very nice paycheck for it. Maybe except Chris Evans, and we can get to his performance later, but everybody else just feels like a shell of a character who's in this movie. And it's nice that they got these really appealing actors and actresses for that uh, movie. But you look at Ana de Armas' character, for example, and she played a much briefer role in the most recent Bond movie. And she was only in it for a few minutes, but I could tell you a lot more about that character and what she brought to that movie uh, than the one she gets to play here. And yeah. that I think is a major issue if you're really spending so much money on getting uh, the best money you can buy in terms of your performers. Yeah, you said a couple of things there I want to touch on. One, uh, as far as like, yeah, getting by on Tom Cruise's, uh, you know, want to as an action star. I, It's funny, like as many things, as many different types of things as Ryan Gosling has done, like other than Drive, where he does a couple badass things, there's not a lot of like action movies in his filmography, really. I mean, Blade, Blade Runner, Runner maybe. But like, I can't, can you really, when you think back on it, like, I, I, I more just remember him walking through a bunch of like really incredible Roger Deakin cinematography than I do like any one action scene he had in that movie necessarily. And well, there was that pretty uh, gritty opening fight with Dave Bautista when he tries right. to apprehend him. Right. Th- that was right. a pretty good way to start off that movie. But yeah. you're right. It's definitely not primarily an action movie. I'll give you that. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so and I think there's a couple moments here where it's like maybe maybe some of this action would be shot a little clear if he was doing more of the fight fighting himself you know maybe there's more maybe there's more stunt doubles in there and such that they're not going to shoot it in a way where it's as interesting to watch and we know tom cruise does all of his own stunts so that's part of it and i think that i think that hinders the action some uh as far as as far as ana de Armas, I, I i really like her a lot as an actress and i, I then bonds another one uh, no time to die is another one we, we we already talked about go back and listen to that podcast and i i'm pretty sure i said there was definitely not enough of her in it and that was the best part of the movie uh here, it's like, talked about yep yeah i don't dislike her presence in this movie but like i that it only kind of like led me to like nitpick the plotting a little more whenever she was on screen and they were talking about like what her motivations were because she's like this is messing with my career I'm going to kidnap you and you're going to tell them that like, I didn't help you. And he's like, why do you, and, and to, to be, to be clear, to be fair to the movie, he makes the point, like, why do you think they would believe me? They're like trying to kill me. Like, wh- like, what do you think? Why do you think I have any credibility with them? But it's also like, man, like she's going to such great lengths because they just want her and him to team up, but they didn't really bother to like establish like why she's going to go to such great lengths to team up with him necessarily. Um, like, or how that's going to really result in her name getting cleared. They, they obviously didn't arrest her. Like Denny character, like interrogates her, but he doesn't like throw her in jail. He lets her go. It's not, it's, it's like, it doesn't fire her from the CIA as far as we know. So she just, just going to like insert herself into all these dangerous situations when it didn't cost her her job as far as at that point, as far as we knew, if he had like, if, if they had fired her on the spot, maybe it makes more sense for her to like, she has nothing to lose at that point. So I was just like, I don't really get why you're throwing yourself in all these super dangerous situations at this point, even though like I, in a vacuum, I very much like Ana Darmus. So, um, uh, yeah, yeah. I, do, I do as well. And you mentioned that she already worked together with Ryan Gosling. She worked together with Chris Evans. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she was in uh, Deep Water earlier this year, which wasn't necessarily a great movie, but she, she was very good. Performance in it. Yeah. yeah. And she's going to get another chance uh, to work with Netflix in the Marilyn Monroe. Uh, yeah, she, yeah we, might be, we might be talking about her during Oscar season uh, for that. But uh uh, but yeah, I mean, so we obviously have already kind of touched on a lot of quibbles with our movies. One thing that can often sometimes maybe, you know, be a saving grace for a movie like this is if you have like a very like charismatic villain performance or something like that, you know, like at least something else to hold on to. Uh, Chris Evans is certainly doing something in this movie and relishing the opportunity to like, 
be a different kind of guy. It's funny. He's teaming up with the guys from the Captain America movies where he plays like the most clean cut person possible. And and I think is very excited to have the opportunity to play a scumbag. Uh, you know, and, and he was, he obviously wasn't the, the good guy necessarily in Knives Out, but it's just a very different kind of uh, heel turn as well. Is there some base level of enjoyment you got from seeing him ham it up? Because I think I got some level of enjoyment and I was kind of amused seeing him go for it, but it wasn't something that was so effective that necessarily like raised the floor of the movie for me, you know? That's a good way to put it. Although I will say I genuinely enjoyed that performance because I think Chris Evans has really kind of uh, become typecast as like the archetypal superhero character. Obviously, like he looks great in his Captain America outfit and he plays the most like patriotic symbol of this country in the Marvel franchise. So I'm just really happy that now that he's done with that, that he's kind of doing something similar that Daniel Craig is doing after he finished the Bond franchise, that he's branching out and going for something totally different. And I already really enjoyed it in Knives Out. And I got a really good kick out of it here too, because I think when you have a movie that's this kind of colorless and uninspired, uh, the best way to really make it more enjoyable is to have a totally hammy villain who provides a bit of that energy and comic relief that you don't get otherwise. And I, I think he really showed up for the assignment. I just really enjoyed this uh, idea that he was so incompetent at his job that he basically just keeps like destroying entire cities, killing a whole bunch of people. Like he's basically the person who runs around the house with a fly swatter trying to crush a fly. And in the process, the entire house comes crumbling down. And I get a ton of enjoyment out of those performances because it doesn't necessarily fit in with the rest of the tone of the movie. But then again, I don't really think there's a whole lot to the gray man that's um, especially memorable. I mean, the title is actually a perfect nomer for it. The gray man, like gray, it's a boring, unexciting color. But then you have a Chris Evans character in there who's really bringing a lot of excitement into it whenever he's on screen. And I got a, I got a kick out of it. I want, okay. I want him to do more of this stuff. Absolutely. Okay. So like I said, I enjoyed watching him do some, like, be all weird and unhinged in certain ways. Uh, and you mentioned, like, oh, maybe I'm not going to find any of the gray man that memorable. One of the things I might find memorable, whether it be for better or worse, is that Prague tram sequence. And which, you know, well, I guess, like, that happens... After, I mean, let me back up for a second. I mean, that whole entire sequence, starting with him being, uh, with Six being handcuffed to the bench. And uh, as he's there, I mean, it's, it's in theory, it's kind of cool that like, hey, this guy's handcuffed to a bench and somehow surviving a shootout and uh, picking off people while doing it. But I guess with respect to, like you said, the Chris Evans guy being bad at his job and to the movie's credit, it has the Jessica Henwick character uh whose who's name is uh i'm forgetting her name for a second uh but it, it, she, she's basically calling him out the whole time that's going on and uh, yeah her name is suzanne brewer she's calling him out the whole time it's going on for just how awful he is and like this is terrible stop it and so at least there's some voice it'll in the room be taught in this school is a bad one idea. day as an example of how not to do it i gotta asset, I, I so gotta how not to do that. how not to do asset retrieval which is which is fine but like at a certain point during that sequence where it's like at the behest of the CIA, he was ordering people to kill regular police officers. Just do it. And I spent a lot of that scene, like, not appreciating it for any of its technical achievements, but instead, like, trying to determine how much I should suspend my disbelief. Because I'm like, well, on the one hand, I'm telling myself, this is a movie, Josh. Like, you can't just expect it to all be realistic. But at the same time, like, you know... People like to criticize the Marvel movies sometimes for like, or or within the Marvel universe, the the the, the superheroes get criticized for all the collateral damage. You know, like there, there's a whole entire 
there's a whole like basically the events of Avengers: Days of Ultron, which you know these directors or they, they actually weren't involved in this. They came in, they, they were there for I think Joss. That was the last Joss Whedon directed one. But the fact is, they directed a bunch of movies where the fallout of that was re- always relevant. Like, how should these people be regulated? Uh, they, they directed Civil War, like they created all this collateral damage. The Avengers did. What are we going to do about them? So here, because it's the CIA, I'm like, okay, I'm watching a movie where the CIA is sanctioning this dude to straight up murdering all these citizens. And I'm like wondering what, like, what is going to happen here? Like, how am I, how is this agency supposed to like go on operating throughout the movie? Someone's going to want answers for who this entity was that was murdering all these cops. And it's like, and then on top of that, even after all the cop murdering, they're going to run roughshod with a tram and just do a gunfight all the way through the damn city. And there were, there were parts of that sequence in, in, in isolation that were like, very impressive action sequences and very impressive um, stunts and all that. And I'm like, God, like, I, I don't understand how like these people get to keep operating after this point in the movie. It just, it didn't make sense to me. And maybe I should be like, again, put that out of sight, out of mind and accept the fact that it's a movie and shit like that can happen. But it like, it felt so over the top in a way where it's like, you probably could have executed like a more like uh, a really fun action scene and, and without destroying all of Prague and murdering a bunch of innocents as a government. And it might, maybe it would help if it was like, you know, in the Mission Impossible movies, if someone went rogue and took over like a, um, a fictitious organization like the IMF or something like that. Uh, but it's like, it's the CIA. I'm like, they got to answer to people. I'm not saying I'm naive enough to think in real life, the CIA has never done sketchy shit, but like, this is very public sketchy shit, you know? And yeah. I guess, I, and so the, I, I spent so much of that sequence just being like, wow, this is befuddling. Do you remember like in the John Wick movies where uh, I think it's in, I think it's in John Wick. I think it's in two where he has the shootout with common on the subway. Um, mm-hmm. And it's like always silencers. Like that's such a cool scene where it's like I can kind of understand how like like there might be some like murdering and stuff going on in public when you like take the time to like do it in a clever way like that. But here it's like I, I just couldn't get over it, man. Like I I was like, look, I I get it. It's funny where Chris Hen- Chris Evans on the one hand yelling, "How hard is it to murder a handcuffed dude?" And like I so I laughed at that, but at the same time I'm like, this is almost too ridiculous for me to to get over. Yeah, and I think that's also a very real conversation you can have. And I'm not sure if this is necessarily the best movie to do it for, but mm-hmm. when you have this much collateral damage in a movie kind of just devalues human life in general, right? Because you just have a bunch of faceless characters getting shot, just doing their job. And the movie is perfectly fine doing that because it's in service of a really cool action set piece. And I get that, but if you just keep randomly murdering people, especially ones that don't really have anything to do with the whole situation, I mean, people who aren't real characters, but were just showing up to try to get their job done, uh, it just gets to a point where you think, well, uh, there aren't really any emotional stakes to this anymore because you're so willing to just uh, have this much, wreak this much havoc, have this much destruction. Uh, and I think that's a real problem when you're careful about how many people really end up dead when the body count is slow and characters take the time to really only kill the characters they have to. Um, then I think you still have that emotional component carrying through the entire movie. But when you don't really consider any of that and people just end up dead randomly at any given point, then it's very hard to actually stay emotionally involved because, like you said, it's really hard to take it seriously. Well, okay, I hear what you're saying there to some extent. I'd say, I'd say for that part of the movie, it's more accurate to say there's no consequences as opposed to no stakes at all because – like it doesn't make any sense at the end of the movie. Like we're not really, it's not, they don't make it clear at all. Like they have this little conference with like the Jessica Henwick character, the Reggie John Page character and the Anna Darmus character where they're like, this didn't go that well guys, but like, we'll let you keep your jobs. It's like, 
wait, like, mm-hmm. are you, are you saying you did a review of the whole entire destruction of Prague? Like, like, it's just weird when like that much murdering can be done without consequence. But like, I think the movie does go for stakes in some way. And that's why I want to ask you about the Billy Bob Thornton and Julia Butters characters. And, uh, cause like, in, in order to like get six, um, Lloyd goes through, uh, the Fitzroy character who he knows was close to six and finds out he has one relative, basically a niece played by Julia Butters, who you might know from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, a movie Fred and I did not do a podcast on, but we actually saw together. And <laughs> like, I, I, I'd forgotten that Julia Butters in this movie. I'm not sure if it was the same. If, I guess she was playing the older version of the character. I, I didn't even really recognize her because, you know, this movie was filmed, you know, like well after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's like a not eight year old girl or nine year old girl, 10 year old girl at that point. So she looked a lot different. So I'm not, I'm guessing she was played in the, the later timeline by her. I don't know if they just made her look younger in the earlier version, but regardless, like six has some connection to them too. We, we get a flashback where he kind of babysat for, her. it's kind of implied. He had some sort of ongoing relationship with her that he would care about her that much that he, you know, wouldn't really care at all that like Fitz sold him out on with his extraction team and uh, was just down to go save him. So it's like, it do, the movie does try and establish some characters that we would, in theory, care about if they died. They kind of do it a little bit with the Alfre Woodard character, too, but she's like in it for even less than those other ones. So it's hard to say her death is as emotional as it should be, even if that's a very good short performance, I would say. So I'm wondering, like, did those aspects of the movie, these people that actually have some kind of relationship with Six, he does care about, they're there for him. A lot of that final act hinges on him trying to protect them and the Fitzroy character making a really selfless act. Did you, did, did that stuff work for you to some extent? Sort of, I guess. I, I just thought the whole relationship with Fitzroy's niece was established kind of clumsily. The flashback was kind of randomly inserted and you don't really get a good sense of what their relationship was. I mean, you described it pretty well when you said, yeah, he babysat her at one point. Right, but, it, uh, but it's kind it of goes, implied that like he doesn't have a lot of time just to go hang out with a six-year-old girl. It's implied that like they're just sending him on constant murder missions. Like he doesn't have a lot of downtime. I get the feeling, you know, they could have easily explained yeah. it away a little more and been like about like in like three sentences at some point if they wanted to like explain like why she might mean more to him than you would think if all you knew is a babysat babysatter once. Yeah. I mean, the movie is really weird about building out these relationships because the very first scene takes place in prison, right? Where Billy Bob Thornton and Ryan Gosling sit down together and Billy Bob Thornton explains the entire spiel about the Sierra program. um, And he gets recruited straight out of prison. uh, And then we make a time jump of, I think it's 17 years. Um, So you don't really get to see their relationship grow. All of a sudden it goes from fresh recruit to father figure essentially. And when you really have that big jump and there is such a fundamental change in the relationship between two characters, uh, then you introduce another factor, which is to say her, uh, his niece, and you only get a very brief, brief flashback to contextualize what that relationship is. I- I'm just not really feeling the emotional connection there because they never really get to spend much time together because Chris Evans's character, Lloyd Hansen, kidnaps her pretty much right away. Like mm-hmm. That happens very early on. As soon as he's brought onto the job, um, he kidnaps the girl and then at that point we're supposed to believe Ryan Gosling has a stake in rescuing her uh, and, and I get that that is really what the plot of the movie is supposed to be but because we haven't really had much time to establish those emotional stakes yet I, the whole thing just felt a little forced and shoehorned into me almost so it, the movie just doesn't do a really good job of establishing all of that because it's so over eager to get to the action set pieces that I think they really needed to do a little bit more work uh, to lay the groundwork for all of that to really make me care about it in the final act. 
Yeah, I really do like Billy Bob's performance, though. I feel like I haven't seen him in the movies in a while, and it was kind of cool mm-hmm. to see him. Um, I thought I just I, I I did appreciate his presence and the first phone call where uh where Six does call and ask for the extraction. I I, I don't know. I, I guess I just kind of like their back and forth there. You've, albeit it was over the phone. Like I I just kind of felt like I got their vibe in the shorthand that they were talking in. It kind of helped fill in some blanks where you know they were they were they were kind of talking a little bit in code, but not completely. And I, I, I could kind of see their rapport and understand that like, hey, he was his partner for a while and they were probably pretty close if they can communicate with this level of ease. And so that that did kind of work for me. And in so much as like I understood their relationship and why he would care about him and everything. And so I don't know, I, I guess that a lot of that stuff worked for me when it was a little more grounded and, and felt more grounded and uh, believable than a lot of the other stuff we already criticized necessarily, but it's like this movie's two hours and nine minutes, and there's like a lot of stuff that like just didn't do anything for me. So I'm perfect. There's so much stuff in here I could easily just like uh, put on the cutting room floor and like add, and like we said, just added in a couple more you know scenes here and there, maybe even a hell, maybe even a. I, I they probably don't want to do flashbacks because they want to leave it open to have a prequel to cover that territory, but like a a flashback or something to like with the Alfrey Woodard character because it we only really see the one scene where she's in the room with Billy Bob and Six when right before they go and get babysat. I guess we see him put the thing in the mail to her, I guess, but we don't really see her at all until he shows up at her place in Prague. Besides that, so it's like hell. Maybe it would have been cool to like see one more interaction they had in the past and another couple interactions he had with Claire in the past, and it maybe that whole part of the movie just feels a little bit more moving and we're more invested in it i suppose and it just i feel like that would have gone a long way given the uh given the other weaknesses in this movie i suppose so um, yeah yeah i guess i'm also just a little bit hesitant always to believe that the operative and their handler have such a close like emotional bond um because the comparison that i tried to make was bond and m for example both in Golden Eye and Casino Royale, because in Golden Eye that was Pierce Brosnan's first performance as Bond, and in Casino Royale it was Daniel Craig's first performance. Uh, mm. And you get the sense that even though they have a good relationship, there are also a lot of animosities and disagreements about how to handle certain things. M is not a huge fan of Bond's uh, very old-fashioned, very misogynistic approach to his personal life, uh, and you feel just after a few minutes you have a very good idea of both why they work together very well and also why there's always a lot of conflict whenever they sit in a room together. Um, Mm. And maybe that's just because Judy Dench is just so good at bringing that almost passive aggressive annoyance uh, with Bond to her character. Um, But that I think is just a relationship that I prefer when you have a a supervisor and an agent who sometimes uh, kind of decides to do their own thing. Yeah, I get it, but their um, their their interests are, are just so much more fully aligned pretty quickly in the Gray Man at, at a certain once you get to that certain point where it's like, all right, like you know he needs to save him. Like they're he's not like he's not in the he's not in a, in, a, in an authority position over him for most of the movie though. You know what I'm saying? That, that's fair, but again, that relationship just isn't as exciting to me I because it just yeah. offers more it offers more opportunities when there are certain conflicts that the characters need to get over as opposed to okay, we have a shared goal now, and that is really the extent of our relationship in this movie. Uh, his niece is kidnapped. He's also uh, very close to his niece. So they're going to try to do everything to make sure she survives. I don't know if that's yeah. necessarily the most interesting relationship for those two characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, speaking of like technically uh, 
characters and positions of authority. Did, did you have any feelings on the Denny Reggie John Page character? I, I was a little disappointed in that. Like, I don't know if you watch Bridgerton. I mean, he, he was kind of like a, the breakout star from that show and obviously a very charismatic performer. And I was a little disappointed that like, you know, that, that, that was just such a one dimensional evil character in a way that wasn't all that compelling. And, you know, it's like, and it, and it also touched on the stuff I was talking about, where it was just like believability with like getting, get, 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 get being able to get away with crazy shit. It's like, this guy is just like working right out of a CIA office doing like the most illegal shit, like not even like trying to be like covert about it. It seems like in the least. And I was just like, man, like I, I just don't find this corner of the movie compelling. Did you have any, did you have any feelings on him or just or anything else uh, I mean, about whether or not any of that stuff bothered you, I guess. It's very strange that you take one of the most trending performers today who left Bridgerton after one season in part because he was sure to get a lot of really good offers to star in movies now. Mm -hmm. And this is really the first thing he does. Uh, it really just seems like a waste of his personality and his talents because that, th those are the role. Those are the roles that usually just go to like average white dudes, you know, like that yeah. don't have much to offer and they but can I mean, just sit there and be grumpy. Right. And good for them, I guess, for going for diversity and not <laughs> going for the most obvious route. But at the same time, so I, I didn't watch Bridgerton, but I actually was familiar with Reggie Jean Page even before that because he was in the remake of Roots a couple of years ago, oh, um, okay. which wasn't especially widely seen, but I watched. And he, was a, he played one of the most charismatic characters in that show as well. Mm. Uh, so I know that when his parts are written well, that he is a very charming, very charismatic, uh, instantly appealing persona. And again, it's nice that he's playing against type, uh, kind of like what Chris Evans is doing here. And obviously they have very different personalities in this movie, but I always enjoy it when uh, actors try to branch out and go for something different than what they're primarily known for. I just didn't think that they really did anything with that character except for him to stand around with a headset or a Bluetooth, I guess, and issue instructions. I mean, that is really his function in this movie. And, th and, th and throw shit and scream when, you know, you got bad news, which is, uh, most, which, which, is, yeah. which, is most, which is most of the movie. And it's like, yeah, you, it's just like, you know, he's capable of a lot more. When the story came out that he was going to be in this movie and it was an expensive, like, you know, um, action movie from the Russos with Chris Evans and Ryan Gosling, I was like, all right, well, th this guy seems like, a, you know, a, he's still a, a pretty young actor, athletic looking, like maybe he'll get to do some cool action stuff. And it's just not what he signed up for, though. I mean, I don't blame him for like, saying yes to the big expensive blockbuster movie with the Russos and those other three stars attached. It's like, I get it for him. I just wish it had been like, you know, something a little different. We, we didn't actually, we talked more about Chris Evans than we actually did about Ryan Gosling's performance. Um, did you, how, how did you feel about uh, him in the movie? Cause like, as I mean, like I, I like I said, like as excited as this might, his involvement might've been the reason I was more likely to like check this out than I was any of this other Netflix stuff. As I told you before, uh, yesterday when we were talking about doing this podcast i i was you know like it just chris evans alone might not have been enough like i mean i've skipped other russo brothers stuff with tom holland i never watched that cherry movie i again i i've already named a chris hemsworth one or two chris hemsworth movies i didn't watch i um and uh and who was it uh oh and some other ryan reynolds stuff like just a, a star of that caliber that's been in a superhero movie isn't necessarily going to be enough i think ryan gosling was it and like I still enjoy just like seeing him act like he's one of my favorite actors. And I thought it, I, I don't think it felt too repetitive. Like, I mean, drive is a great movie, 
But like that guy doesn't really have like an ounce of sense of humor in that movie. It's a good performance, but it's like, look, it should, we know he can be like a pretty, we know he can be an action star to some extent, even if I said he's not doing all the Tom Cruise stuff, but I still feel like at least like this felt like a different note for him because it wasn't as, uh, it wasn't as stoic of a performance as it was in drive. This guy has some jokes. He has a little bit more charisma. So it's not like he's doing like uh, slapstick type stuff, which he does so brilliantly in the nice guys, but it's like, Hey, it's like a little bit of the com, a little bit of the comic side of him, but also like being able to do like cool action shit too. It felt like something like a little bit like something I hadn't seen from him before. So I still really enjoyed his presence, even if I can nitpick a lot of the stuff around him. Do you have any other just thoughts on what on Gosling in this movie? Well, I think my biggest thought about Gosling is that uh, I really want a nice guy sequel. Mm. Like where is that? Much, much more so than a great man sequel. Special- Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Netflix, get on that. Uh, that's what I want from you guys. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's good, again, that he's back on screen, that he's going for something different for him as an actor. But I don't know how different the character really is from any of your stereotypical top secret operatives uh, involved in international spying. I mean, there wasn't sure. really anything about the character that stood out. Um, maybe I guess that he's an ex-con uh out of prison and that they trained him to become a CIA operative. Um, But it honestly kind of almost felt like Suicide Squad a little bit where they built their top secret team from people who are in jail Mm -hmm. and then they take them out. And uh, obviously if they get caught and killed, they're disavowed. Um, Obviously a very different tone they're going for than Suicide Squad. But I feel like that's a problem with the movie in general. And every, like basically every major action franchise of the past 20 years is somehow represented in here. Uh, there's a little bit of John Wick, right? Because there's a contract out on Ryan Gosling's character now and basically every single hitman uh, in the hemisphere is going after him. There is a lot of the Bourne franchise in there as well, uh, where you have that top secret program by the CIA. In this case, it's the Sierra program. In the Bourne franchise, it was Treadstone. There's even a joke in here that- It's totally an amalgamation of- It's totally an amalgamation of stuff that came before it, for sure. It is, and I feel like Ryan Gosling's character is also an amalgamation of a lot of the uh, secret agents uh, slash uh, intelligence oh, sure. operatives that we've that, that we that we've seen a lot before. So it's yeah. a little bit different for him as an actor. I'll give you that, uh, but as a character in this particular genre, he's really not a novelty. Agreed. Uh, anything else about the movie you wanted to touch on that we have not discussed yet? Yeah, I find it find it kind of frustrating that uh, when an action film kind of advertises itself and sees itself as an international thriller that it feels the need to literally be set in like 12 different countries because it was really funny actually like every five minutes you were like all right we're in bangkok now we're in baku now we're in berlin now we're in vienna now we're in washington dc now we're in prague and it's really difficult to get a sense of place when you keep jumping from location to location every few minutes Uh, i think that's something i really like about the mission impossible franchise where you have uh, they, they do a lot scene. of they do a lot of jumping around in those though well yeah but i mean you get, go to let's say um in mission impossible uh fallout right you're in paris and then you actually stay in paris for about 30 to 40 minutes and you mm-hmm. kind of set the scene a little bit there are some interactions for why they're in paris right now and what the goal is and then your major action set piece rolls around and here I just kind of felt like they were location jumping for the sake of location jumping, just to show off, oh, this is how many great cities we were able to shoot in. It's also going to be great for tourism in those cities because a lot of them are still struggling from COVID. 
So maybe, I don't know, the Austrian government or the Czech government gave them a little bit of money to specifically film in Vienna or in Prague. And it's good that they did that, sure. But it's very difficult to really get a sense of, okay, why is this particular scene happening in this particular country right now if they don't actually spend an extended period of time in it? So that became a little bit jarring almost, where every few minutes we were somewhere else and I wasn't entirely clear on, okay, why exactly did we just spend a few minutes in Berlin or why did we just go to Vienna? I, it's really difficult to fully keep track of where the plot is taking us when you just keep changing scenery on us every so often. Yeah, the Berlin is the one thing I didn't get. I got, I got that they were in Bangkok because that was where the first mission was and Prague was where he sent that thing. Uh, but whatever happened in between, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know why they, why they ended up in Berlin at all. I cannot, if you put a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you. I feel like it might've been when I did the Top Gun Maverick podcast. I, I talked about what I liked about that movie a lot was its simplicity. And I, but I, I think mm-hmm. I did, I think I, and just how it's like, all right, these guys are in one place. They have a mission. They train for the mission. They go do the mission. They come back. And that's kind of what made it like, why it was like different from like a different kind of worked in a different kind of way from like, you know, Tom Cruise's other big tentpole franchise. And, uh, and I, but I think on that pod, I might've like, reference the mission impossible as being an example of like something where like you know the plotting might just not be great because i don't really know why they ever are doing what they're doing i just know it looks super cool and they do a really good job of it so i'll take your word for it though if you think that those movies are a little better in that regard than this one was but i i just kind of accept that as like a thing with a lot of action movies like they're just going to be globe trotting and you got to do your best to follow it um, no i mean like i said globe trotting is fine i don't mind that but you need to pick a number of locations and then very clearly tell me what is going to happen in those locations and why we're there mm-hmm. uh, you can't simply just jump from one place to the next and then do an action scene there and then keep rolling uh to me that is not really a very effective way of lo- using all of those cool places yeah the, i was just trying to figure out the berlin thing like i control f did on the wikipedia summary and I, it, it didn't even show up like I, so it, it wasn't even important enough to the plot for them to like explain yeah, that they're exactly. in berlin at any point in the wikipedia summary which is like six paragraphs itself uh, although i will yeah. say i appreciate that they seem to have actually shot in a lot of those locations as opposed to just shooting somewhere else and then pretending that that is the city they're going for because i distinctly remember a few months ago i watched the a-team remake uh, mm. the one with liam neeson and bradley cooper uh, and there is a shot in there, a sky shot, that says Berlin, mm. and it's very clearly Frankfurt. Ah. So I really hate it when movies do that, especially because there are always going to be people in the audience who are familiar with those cities, yeah, who are going to be able to call you out on your bullshit. So <laughs> I really like the fact that the action scene in Prague, for example, I recognized a lot of those locations because I was just there. And it's cool that they're actually utilizing those places as opposed to going where it's cheaper and then uh, telling everybody that the city they're shooting and it's actually supposed to be another city uh in the movie yeah oh yeah i forgot they ended up at a french chateau too but i don't really remember why <laughs> um uh god I, i'm looking at this wikipedia it was apparently originally it was going to be uh directed by james gray which i mean i now i can't help but think i would have definitely liked that movie more yeah uh fred i i don't really have anything else to add on this anything else you have to add or any final th- parting thoughts I just feel like if Netflix is going to invest $200 million in a movie, uh, there are a lot better advice to keep doing it for the Knives Out sequels because that's a property that's already proven itself at the box office. And I think they actually did spend that much money on the second Knives Out as well. So, yeah, because I think that Daniel Craig and Ryan Johnson alone are getting $50 million each. So that is just an absolute... Yeah, I mean, it's an insane figure, and it's great that they're uh, paying them that much to come back. 
but I think like people are going to want to see another Knives Out. It's very clear that that was a very successful property and that's actually something they might get a return on. But for an IP that's really unfamiliar to people, uh, that's just going to be attractive because of the performers, I'm just not convinced that that is really the best way for Netflix to solve their already very precarious financial situation. Because every quarter, their numbers are looking worse and worse. And they tried to sell the numbers from this quarter as a success because they only lost a million subscribers. But it's very clear that they have a very deep, very systemic problem there where their content just isn't generating enough attention anymore. And with all the competition out there, uh, with an Amazon Prime that's able to finance a billion dollar Lord of the Rings show, or HBO Max that's making another Game of Thrones prequel now, not to mention Disney Plus with all of their content, it's going to be really hard for Netflix to distinguish themselves in such an oversaturated marketplace. And, and spending are, this much money on a movie like Gray Man, I'm not convinced that that is really the way to do it. Yeah, and they only got one more season of Stranger Things. And aside from that, they don't really have any, you know, massively successful, like, tenpole things. So it's like, you see why they're searching for it. It's just they haven't really, like, come across any that's seeming to stick. And we'll see how well Knives Out performs for them. We'll never really know because you don't know exactly how many people watch any given Netflix movie. But given that the first Knives Out, you know made like, you know, 30, 30, 300 million dollars at the box office or whatever. Uh, you know, you got to think more people will even, I mean, the amount of people they're going to watch on Netflix will probably, you know, be at least that much. So like, I think they got that going for it, but they put a lot more money into it, like you said, than they did the first one. So I don't really know what's all on their books, but like, you know, they, they definitely have some figuring of stuff out to do. Uh, Fred, anything else you've been watching recently you want to highlight before we sign off? Yeah. The one thing I want to recommend that I started watching recently is, uh, we Own the City, mm. that's a new uh, HBO. Well, it's not that new anymore. It came out a few months ago. It's uh, an HBO Max miniseries, six episodes, uh, written and produced by David Simon and George Pelicanos. Uh, you might know those guys from doing The Wire and more recently, The Deuce. Um, just in case you want to be even more upset at law enforcement in this country, <laughs> I highly recommend watching that. It's set in Baltimore. It really takes a deep dive into the mismanagement and the corruption of the police department there, uh, primarily in the follow-up of the Freddie Gray murder uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it just paints a really fascinating and just really depressing picture of how, on one hand, you had people making overzealous arrests to enrich themselves, and also law enforcement officers who were just shirking their duty entirely because uh, they decided that if they were going to be criticized for doing their job, uh, they just weren't going to do it anymore at all. Um, really good cast, six episodes. It's a really, uh, really quick watch. Highly recommend that. Yeah, if, uh, I'm not going to even add anything because I haven't watched a lot of new stuff lately, but I don't think I mentioned that. Like, I actually finished We Own This City about like a week ago or so. So I, I can also like vouch for everything Fred said very well done and not a huge time commitment, just six episodes, but it really accomplishes a lot. And yeah, you're not going to necessarily leave it feeling like super optimistic. It's not unlike the wire in that regard, but certainly, um, you know, educational and entertaining, like a, a very great John Bernthal performance that uh, unfortunately did not get recognized at the Emmys last week. Uh, so I, or I mean, when you're listening to this, it'll been a few weeks, a couple weeks since Emmy nominations, but like, let's just say the Emmys have never really like given uh, David Simon much paid much attention, never given David Simon much love. I think, you know, he got like a couple of writing, he and Pelicanos might've gotten a writing nomination or two on the wire and that is about it. 
so you know just enjoy it for what it is and uh check it out and you know if you obviously and if you haven't seen the wire then like obviously fix that fred uh before you sign off uh where can people find your letterbox and twitter and stuff yes please yep follow me on letterbox absolutely uh the name there is fred kolb f-r-e-d-k-o-l-b uh, writing a lot of reviews on there so please give me a follow if you enjoyed the stuff that i talked about you can also follow me on twitter my handle there is uh at fred the german don't really post a lot about movies on there but if you're interested in my uh different opinions where this country Bro. is headed <laughs> sports maybe somehow <laughs> then feel free to give me oh. a follow on twitter as well uh, yeah, as usual, I'm Josh Chernovoy, J-O-S-H-J-U-R-N-O-V-O-Y on Twitter and Letterboxd podcast. Twitter is at Rewind Movie Pod. Podcast email is rewindmoviepod at gmail.com. Uh, there's a lot of movies coming out in August. I'm not really sure exactly what order they're all going to come in, but, you know, we got uh, Bodies, 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 the horror movie, Bullet Train, the new uh, Brad, Brad Pitt, David Leach collaboration, uh, Emily the Criminal, uh, just... And I think there's at least one or two other things that uh, I've, I've, that have been brought to my attention. So uh, there's not going to be a shortage of movies. As I just hope it doesn't kill me over the next month because it was oddly it kind of oddly felt like a sparser summer movie season, at least to this point, you know, and uh, th- then it normally would be like Fred reached out the other day. And he's like, we haven't done a podcast in a while, but there's not really one I feel like we should have done. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, you're right. Though. I just I haven't been like been a ton out at the theaters recently, aside from like, you know, Thor Love and Thunder that like I felt all that excited to see. So I, I think things are about to kind of turn around in that regard. And like, that'll kind of take us right up to like when the Oscar movies start coming out. So uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, thanks again to Fred for joining. Thanks to everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.